I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. So I'm Preeti and I'm really pleased to see those of you who have come because this book is incredible. It's by Sky. She's a writer. She's based in India. She writes for the LRB. She writes for Art Forum, Eflux, Freeze and others. And what I love about her work is that it pays special attention to contemporary politics culture and the multiple histories of South Asia. She's co-editor of the London-based arts and literary journal, The White Review. And in 2020, she was one of the founding editors of Academy Mag, an online political journal where she worked on long-form political commentary on surveillance, tech, healthcare, and the law. She's the co-winner of the first annual Mac Research Fellowship, where along with Isabella Scott, she's working on a second book, a long and critical piece of writing on the protracted crime of the communications blackouts and the conditions of military occupation. So today we're here to discuss her first book-length essay, Remember the Details, which acts as a vitally important primer and an act of witness and remembrance of details that are now being erased, documenting the 2019 people's protests in India over the introduction of two major pieces of discriminatory legislation, the Citizenship Amendment Act and the National Citizenship Register, which, like the Police Crime Sentencing and Courts Act and the Nationality and Borders Act in the UK, disproportionately impact the most marginalised groups, minorities, um, Muslims. And so, you know, we're making these links in quite incendiary times between different kinds of ways, uh, different specificities of geography, but similar patterns across these places. People um, in India remember these headlines, Shaheen Bagh and the students of Jamia Millia University. But what this book really asks is, do we remember the names of the protesters, the small, very real acts of resistance expressed in words, signage, and art installations, and the corresponding cases of state brutality and imprisonment that followed. Remember the Details is a working document that asks us to pay attention and to the proliferation of images and how they're used, but also to the proliferation of resistance through a movement concentrating on no one person but many. 
It's underpinned by an extraordinary attention to the language and detail of Indian law and the Indian constitution, tracking as an act of potential liberation how language shapeshifts for, for political wheel, will. So remember the details is a risky document because it asks with the young student leaders whose protests and subsequent arrest it tracks, what is the risk I pose? It's a stark, brave and important piece of work, Sky. Thank you for writing it and for being here today. So I want to ask you to talk about the political context of the book and the specific events and the details you focus on here. Why was it important for you to isolate this one crisis from many events marking a country at war against its minorities and to think about these details? Cool. Thank you so much. And thank you, everyone, for being here. It's very nice to see you all. Um, <clears throat> so to kind of uh, take you through the political landscape in which this essay takes place in um, December 2019, two new uh, bills were introduced into kind of lower sections of parliament, one of which was the, um, an amendment to the Citizenship Amendment Act, uh, Citizenship Acts of the 50s, uh, which suddenly introduced religious registers in the granting of, in, of citizenship. Um, uh, and in this kind of like long list of uh, potential religious classifications, it, completely um, did not mention Islam or Muslims. Um, and the second was the, this kind of new national register um, of, of citizens, which would require Indians to provide quite extensive ancestry documents in order to prove their um, kind of belonging to this nation state. Um, and the, the laws were kind of designed to work in tandem and they got passed very quickly and partly it was um, a shock and, 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 a, and a kind of very extreme type of um, surveillance because most Indians are undocumented. Um, it is a nation state entirely made up of kind of movement and migration. Most Indians cannot prove ancestry. Um, and in specifically targeting Muslims and lower caste people, um, it seemed to belong to a larger conversation around what the current central government um, is, 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 is up to. Um, and so uh, the ways in which the protests began, or the ways in which the, we began to receive information about the protest movement were extremely scattered and extremely erratic and very overwhelming. We would receive these kind of short, intense dispatches from, from on the ground or um, from within the courts uh, because kind of emergency petitions started to be filed. And it was very difficult to process this landscape. And it was a very particular experience to be on the receiving end of it. Um, and as the protest movement grew and um, I went to protests in several different cities and um, I think you know almost everyone I knew was participating in them and there was this kind of great class caste diversity in who was showing up to the protests um, we were living this thing but not really tracking it um, and so um, Aaron my publisher who uh, unfortunately couldn't make it today when when he asked me to write an essay about visual culture in, in India uh, I, it, it seemed to me that this was the thing to write about because it seemed to fundamentally change the way in which we process images, um, which anyways kind of have shifted since the Modi government came into power in 2014 
with the proliferation of fake news and um, extremely kind of, there's like a, a, a quite a serious like normalization of violent images within mainstream Indian public like consciousness um, that reached a high epitome when the protest movement started. Because the first images we saw were of very intense clashes between um, student protesters and the police in the, in the Northeast. Um, almost immediately, the protesters were deemed as kind of riotous and violent by the mainstream media. So some of the only things we could rely on was social media footage. Um, so already from the start, we were kind of having to square this weird circle um, with what we were hearing on the news or reading versus what we were kind of seeing. So what's the role of art in the protests world <clears throat> that you um, identify? Talk about the art pieces that you bring to light and they seem to me in the piece to be these important symbolic representations of resistance, especially when freedom of speech and freedom to gather is so threatened. Mm. Talk, talk us through some of those um, art, art installations that you talk about. In the book. Mm. So on the 15th of uh, December, it, it, the, the kind of clashes between student and police like reached this high crescendo when uh, police entered the campus of the National Islamic University in Delhi, the Jamia Millia University. Um, and we saw these kind of very shaky dispatches from <clears throat> students of um, the police kind of entering and, and being quite indiscriminate with their with, with, and, and very unchecked with their violence. Um, on the same night, a group of women in the neighborhood of Shaheenbag, um, which is on the banks of the Yamuna River in Delhi, kind of took to the streets because um, I think some people tried to go to local police stations to try and understand what was going on at the university and uh, they found all of the police stations around the university, the doors were sealed shut. Um, and so people kind of gathered and then th this kind of very important protest site, Shaheen Bagh, was born. Um, and within the first weeks of the protest site coming into place, these artworks started being put up. So there was this kind of enormous map of India, like a wrought iron map of India that was uh, made by students from um, like art school uh, a little bit down south. Um, and there was uh, poems being written on like little pieces of paper and being laid out at candlelight vigils. There was also a kind of um, detention center that was constructed um, out of like very flimsy kind of paper and asked people to kind of enter these like cage-like rooms. Um, and there was... An, an enormous India gate. Yeah, and an enormous India gate made out of cardboard uh, and brick. Um, and this, and it was that one was very interesting because um, it was so kind of like f flimsy, um, and it seemed to you know very directly kind of critique the grandstanding like nature of of, of fascist architecture. Um, the, this India Gate was like uh, inscribed with names of uh, protesters that had already uh, been either hurt or killed by the police. Um, in front of it was like uh, was placed this kind of basket of onions because while the protest movement was going on, um, labor laws were being revisited as well, and inflation was at an all-time high, um, and we were kind of being distracted. Um, so I think a lot of it was like reminders to try and see everything in tandem. 
Um, and so I think what I wanted to really do was like write a very simple primer. Um, just like, it, it is like one chronology of events. It's one set of images. It's one set of artworks. It, it, it doesn't have this kind of expansive ethnographic approach. Um, I just wanted to be able to write something where, um, you know, someone could pick it up that had maybe never heard of the protest movement, be brought up to speed. And then I do try to slip in some of my thoughts on the Indian nation state too. Um, and it's this attention to the detail of how art operates and how that links into the law, which is so interesting about what you're doing and when you're bearing witness to violence and to trauma, um, you really draw on the law. You're thinking mm. about the letter of the law and how it's being used. So what kind of opportunities does that kind of deep reading <coughs> of documents which other people would consider extremely dry give you? Mm. What does that give the protest that you're making in the book? Mm. Um, so early on in 2020, actually it's quite nice that we're in the LRB bookshop because it was the LRB that first gave me the opportunity to write this kind of very direct type of political essay. Um, and so I started writing these dispatches, like columns almost for the blog, um, where um, I started with writing about the laws, the, 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 the change in, in laws, then uh, the protest movement, and then kind of right before the pandemic hit, there was um, these kind of very intense amount of violence in the northeast of Delhi. <clears throat> which the Delhi police very quickly framed on the actions of a group of um, uh, well, like leaders or uh, of the protest movement, although they don't like to call themselves leaders. Um, and when the when they were first taken in, we were told that they were arrested on um, uh, uh, kind of clauses of the Indian Penal Code, this kind of very ambiguous piece of terrorist legislature, the Arms Act. Um, and, and we kind of had a list of all, all, all of the different acts under which they were held. Um, and it wasn't until the first bail petition was filed for one of the protesters that I, um, and, and then I was able to access this bail petition, that I actually saw the, the clauses of each of the laws that they had been charged with. And I just, I think that was like a really big moment of like how we weren't understanding the scale at which this was happening, because they are essentially being charged with some of the like most intense um, pieces of legislature that could be used, against, like a nation state could wield against its own citizens. So they're charged with m manufacturing arms at the protest sites. I mean, even that as a concept is so absurd because the protest sites had these artworks and daycare centers and kind of late night music um, performances. So they're charged with all of these kind of very intense pieces of legislature. And one argument is, you know, it's a fabricated case. The police is like grasping at every straw. They'll slap them on, make it very hard for them to get bail. But another part of it is like suddenly these bail petitions started to become uh, tools or pieces of information or pieces of even news that I wasn't able to access through reporting always. Um, and so I kind of started reading like high, like high court um, judgments or court proceedings as a way to keep up with something that was becoming increasingly senseless and increasingly difficult to understand. 
um, when uh, the, the Umar Khalid, who I, I write about in, uh, more specifically in the, in the book, was taken in, it said that the charge sheet against him was 17,000 pages long. And there was this like great anecdote of how the Delhi police had to carry in the charge sheet in these like metal boxes. Um, and, and I think I, I started to realize that part of this, um, this in, the, the enormity was to make it difficult for us to understand it. It was to intentionally obfuscate something. Um, and so kind of accessing the law became a way to try and understand it because it was playing at the level of the court. Um, and we started to see these kind of moves that, that ha so the, the kind of, the ways in which the judicial structure works, every state has like a high court, which then can re recommend pieces of legislature to the Supreme Court. And I found what was happening at the Supreme Court level to be very interesting because they're not really looking at evidence, they're just looking at the law, or they're looking at precedent set in, in, in kind of lower level courts. And high courts would kind of, so the Delhi High Court, when the, the, this violence in the Northeast is raging, does this kind of interesting thing, um, which I also have um, described in the essay, where they like wheel in this television and they, play, they call in the Delhi superintendent of police and play three clips from social media as a way to show how BJP officials um, were rallying violence and how the police had to arrest these specific <clears throat> individuals. And it was completely absurd because um, um, a, a, fa a recording of a Facebook Live uh, video, um, a YouTube clip, and an Instagram story were introduced into the courtroom as a type of kind of evidence. Um, and the Delhi superintendent, the Delhi superintendent of police, like, said that they didn't have, any, they didn't know anything about this. They didn't know how to process this. This wasn't real evidence. So suddenly, the things that we were um, accessing as fact became the things that were being disputed as, as evidence. And um, evidence started to have this kind of enormous, like elastic register um, that I became like very preoccupied with. Um, so by returning to the actual letter of the law and the things that were being written and tracking the way that language was being used, you were able to sort of combat this sense that nothing felt like fact yeah. Everything seemed like it was suddenly in the fictional realm. Mm. Um, did you actually make it through those 17,000 pages? Um, I am sitting with the 17,000 page charge sheet now, uh, which is actually only a preliminary charge sheet. There's three more that add up to another 10,000 pages. Um, and what I'm finding really interesting is that um, this case is entirely fabricated. The, 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 the like big pieces of evidence that the prosecution rests, rests its case on um, are kind of anonymous eyewitnesses that see some of these activists entering rooms and then speculating on what conversations were had in those rooms. I mean, it's entirely a piece of fiction. Um, and the charge sheet has to like almost do this like crazy gymnastics to make that fiction real. And I started to see a lot of quite strange contradictions. So one of the activists, who's um, Umar Khalid, one of the kind of key pieces of evidence against him is this truncated video from a speech he made during the, as the protests were going on, where he quotes Gandhi. You know, he's like taking this like very nonviolent approach. 
um, and at some point says, you know, um, kind of asks, like, we need to, like, reconsider how this country is, uh, works. Will you come out on the street with me to figure it out together? Which is and clearly a rhetorical call. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and, and a kind of, you know, and, and a call that Gandhi used, or like a call that has a deep history within the, his, like the, within the subcontinent. And that bit of the video gets truncated as like evidence that he was asking for violent action. Um, and I found that kind of interesting also that the video exists in its entirety on YouTube. It's a 17 minute long clip. Um, it's very easy to access, and yet in the charge sheet, it's this like this excerpted bit is like in there as evidence. So there's a kind um, of corruption that's going on in the law process, which then the me social media, which we're also trying to be suspicious of a little bit, is actually bearing witness to in its entirety. So yeah. how, as you work through this evidence and as you try and write about it, how are you sorting through what's real and what's not here? Yeah, I think that's where, again, the law becomes so useful. Right. Um, because it's so consumed by category um, and it's so consumed by um, drawing contingencies around what con constitutes evidence, it introduces a set of pieces of, of footage or testimony as kind of, as, as fact. And so that becomes one place at which to investigate um, the, the, the kind of information that's floating around. And then we have obviously social media, which is where we were learning about the protest movement from. Um, and I tried to kind of line them up. Mm -hmm. So I think I'm less interested in what's real and more interested in how things turn and, and then how that translates into the law. So uh, a really historic moment is um, when three of the incarcerated activists are finally granted bail in a move that none of us were expecting because this, um, the anti-terrorism laws under which they're held have never actually uh, been appealed in that way. And the way in which the High Court upheld that bail um, petition was, was this extremely uh, kind of interesting um, play on words, which said how, um, and I might quote it slightly incorrectly, but it was, protests um, will, of course, test the limits permissible by law, but this does not constitute as terrorist behavior. So it was the law kind of admitting to its own like, limitation somehow. And I realized at that point that there's such a long history of protest in India, and India is kind of like founded on these like, ideals of protest movement which is why the courts could introduce this type of language, which is entirely abstract, actually, because what is a protest? How does it, what is the limit permissible by law? But somehow this was like a judgment that was able to uh, kind of make history by opposing these like very um, archaic terrorism laws. There's something deeper at stake here, isn't there? And you touch on this in the book. It's a sort of Islamophobia and a systemic work to erase Muslims and their history and contribution to culture from India. And one of the best examples I think you use of that is this idea of the hologram, which was so compellingly given to the nation by Modi on a very specific anniversary. So let's talk a little bit about that more deep-seated intention behind some of the obfuscation that you're talking mm. about. 
Yeah, so the, the holograms kind of started in 2013, um, which were part of Modi's kind of election campaign, where um, you, they, they would set up these like ho holograms of him giving speeches and in, in different kind of rural contexts to introduce people to this man that wanted to kind of lead um, the, the, the People's Party of India, which is what the BJP translates to. Um, and the hologram is like so symbolic of how like Hindu nationalism in particular understands leadership to be, which is the like lone single figure of the patriarch. Um, and the holograms start like moving through the country repeatedly. We have them come up again on the anniversary of the, the first year when, um, when uh, kind of special constitutional freedoms that were granted to Kashmir were taken away to intensify the military occupation. Um, so actually on the anniversary of that date, this hologram resurfaces. situation resurfaced across the country as a kind of distraction from that yeah. anniversary almost. And reaffirming the faith in this like single leader. It's also the day when they broke ground on the, the temple that will now be constructed um, over the site of the kind of desecrated mosque in Ayodhya, which was another kind of turning point in Indian history. Um, and in minority rights and minority rights abrogations, freedom of worship, mm. religious belief, right? Exactly. It's a constitutionally protected act. Um, and uh, so I, I did also start reading the law around demolitions. And what I found very interesting was, so um, the history of the Babri Masjid, which is this kind of mosque in the north of India that gets torn down quite violently by a Hindu mob, and just to bring you up to speed, um, in in the, the dispute kind of started in 1949, two years after the nation state of India was uh, formed, and a year before the, the constitution was even signed, where a group of Hindu fundamentalists enter the main dome of the mosque and plant this idol uh, of a Hindu god in it. And that becomes the like primary dispute of this mosque. And when we see, we, we, we've seen a lot of demolitions happen in Muslim neighborhoods in the last like six months, uh, where the Delhi police have been going, I mean also in Rajasthan and different parts of the north, uh, police have been going in and, and breaking down uh, Muslim-owned businesses, homes, like targeting specific neighborhoods. And so I was writing a piece about the demolitions um, and I was like, okay, I'm going to look into this kind of, into the, the law again. And I found that, um, that, that there was this like, kind of fundamental piece of legislation that was um, drafted in, in the 90s, so like 50 years after the first dispute was filed, um, where the, the, the Supreme Court kind of, in, in, to show its like secularism and to show how uh, the Indian constitution protects the, the kind of religious the predisposition of its citizens, um, uh, release this judgment where they say that kind of places of worship cannot be um, changed into um, a, a kind of different religious register. Um, they have to exist as they did at the time India was formed in 1947. All of them apart from the Babri Masjid and all apart from the places of worship in Kashmir. So already those contingencies were put in place. And one of the interesting things that a judge says in the courtroom is that the Babri Masjid is, you know, is, is the exception to this rule because it's not essential to Islamic history. So this like weird thing is introduced around like what's essential. 
And then we see, you know, kind of uh, come to 2022 where, um, you know, thousands of young Muslim girls can't sit their final board exams because they're, they're not allowed to enter their like college campuses if they're wearing their hijab. Um, and the the high court in, in in, in the like local state where the, the, this was first introduced, says the hijab is not essential to the practice of Islam. What was said as a, as, as a kind of rhetorical device in 94 becomes law in 2022. Right, and that started in 49. That started in 49. So we're seeing this thing repeat through time and these ways of thinking about who, what is essential in terms of religious freedoms and so on and so on become slowly more solidified as it suits the right, a rising kind of fascism, which is what, basically what we're talking about, religious orientated fascism. And you touch on the state's response to Muslim women's activism in the book, but do you think there's a particular threat that police and others perceive Indian women, um, Muslim women in particular, to pose, and how is that being made manifest? Yeah, I, I guess, sorry, I didn't resolve the hologram yeah, yeah, conversation, the hologram. which is the direct link, because the hologram is the way in which the, the Hindu nation state can identify its leadership. What the protest movement showed was that it was um, a type of kind of public uh, occupation of space and organizing that did not have leaders. And if the leaders had to be found, they were groups of, 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 of Muslim women of mixed generations. And I think that was like the deepest of all ideological threats of the, the protest movement was that we saw some of the like largest mobilization across caste, religion uh, and class, uh, you know, since the kind of 90s. Um, and it wasn't premised on leadership. It was kind of premised on the community building efforts of Muslim women, M women who were kind of, you know, cooking, cleaning at home, uh, you know, doing all this kind of invisibilized labor, dropping their kids to school, picking them up, putting them in these daycares that they were building on site, um, and spending all night there, and going home to cook meals for their families and their in-laws. And, you know, so it was kind of this, this mobilization that, that, that depended entirely on community support. So it's many headers. And it cannot be arrested. It cannot be put in prison as a singular thing. There's nothing to locate it. And that's really powerful. You're talking about mutual protests and <clears throat> nothing can happen by a single hero. Yeah. Right? And so the hologram is completely undermined by that kind of mutuality, is it not? Yeah. And, and what they try to do with the, with, the, with the fabricated Delhi riots case is they try to make Umar, which is why I focus on him so much, into a leader. So they reiterate him constantly as this like chief conspirator. They show this video clip. Even though, and you know, I, I've heard Umar speak a few times. I've watched all the speeches online. And he, in every single speech, like clockwork, will begin by saying that it wasn't, this is not a movement of leaders. And he will begin by thanking the grandmothers of Shaheen Bagh who step out on that night after the violence in Jamia Milia. So he, here is someone that is constantly reiterating that he is not a leader, that there are no leaders, and yet the case is almost entirely designed and premised on his leadership. Um, and obviously, you know, the way in which the mainstream media is like kind of telling the story is also premised on the leadership 
of these individuals, some, some of whom I kind of write about in the book. And I think, yeah, I think that seems to be like a very deep, deep ideological threat. Right. And I think one of the things you do in the book is to cite and reference past leaders or past figures from history who have made a network of resistance that we can then use, right? So one of the people that you quote is India's first education minister, who was a Muslim, Maulana Abdul Kalam Azad. Um, and I was really struck by the evocation of his name. My, my own father, as a child, attended his funeral and remembers how striking it was to see him speak about the unity of India. So what resonance does he have for you? I think it's, it's kind of multi-layered. Uh -huh. um, I don't think that Hindutva is an electoral project. Like fundamentally, that's one of the arguments of the book. It is, it, like a Hindu nationalism is embedded within the very social fabric of India. In 1947, or like right before partition, we saw this moment where leaders like Azad were kind of proposing this like composite nationalism, this thing of like Hindus and Muslims coexisting, that India wouldn't be divided across religious registers. He was doing this amazing research on kind of um, um, Sufi uh, poets and writers from Aurangzeb's court. So he was looking back at the Mughal Empire to talk, you know, to look at Islamic law and to talk about the ambiguity that is inherent to a lot of these like ancient court systems, um, and I find I found that quite. I mean, it's it, it, I, I, there are critiques to be made because the composite nationalists, as they were kind of as they're called now, were very invested in saying that um, like communal violence was of British invention. Um, you know, whereas it's like now, I think we kind of understand that caste has existed for maybe three to five thousand years. It's like written out in the Rig Veda. Um, so, um, uh, you know, Hindu versus Muslim violence was already happening during the Mughal Empire. There was a time when India was primarily Buddhist under Ashoka, and that history gets completely erased. So, there is this kind of tendency at that 47 moment where the leaders that go on to like build India or like set the like tone of how it's going to exist seem to uh, want to start with this blank slate. And I, I try to take a dig at uh, the use of concrete and like the import of like Bauhaus architecture or like Corbusier coming to build this like new city for India. Invited by Nehru. With Invited. This, like, socialist vision of, you know, something else that you mentioned. So yeah, talk to us a bit about how you aren't advocating for a turn to Nehruvian politics. The constitution um, you know, is Im important in this and your meditation on that in the book is really fascinating. What, what is that to you and what do we need now? Yeah, I think, um, and this is where the left is quite like fractured. I mean, it's very difficult to uh, think of and conceive of an Indian left, partly because there's at least 12 local chapters of any kind of Marxist division in like part, in all of the southern and northern states. Um, but one of the things um, that is is kind of at the center of this conversation is that the antidote to Hindu nationalism is a return to an India of, of, of the Nehruvian vision, of this 47 kind of vision, uh, of this concrete that gets introduced as an aesthetic register for like a socialist, um, 
uh, construct where like he, let's bleach these like 5,000 years of casteist violence and, and you know, let's ignore the histories that have brought us here. Um, and the constitution starts to look like a decolonial document or becomes totemic in decolonial scholarship. Whereas actually it was drafted by B.R. Ambedkar who was you know, one of the most important anti-caste activists in the history of India in 5,000 years. And it's an, he writes in affirmative action. He writes in um, caste. It's an anti-caste document. It's, you know, it's, it has nothing to do with, with, with being a, a decolonial project. And I think some of us were having these conversations at the protest sites. In, instead of um, posters, a lot of people were just holding up copies of the Constitution with Ambedkar on the front to kind of say, like, let's revisit this 1947 moment and let's try to think of it differently. And I think partly it's to see history as this like long continuum, as, as something that is like, it has been evolving towards this moment and will evolve beyond it because this was not this is not like an exceptional moment in Indian history right. and a lot of Nehruvian scholarship thinks of Hindu nationalism as this like kind of erratic thing that formed despite all of this like legislature whereas we already have people entering the Mabri Masjid in 1947 we have partition where India was going to be structured around the protection of Hindus and so I think that it, it was important to kind of critique that because I'm not, personally, I'm not interested in any kind of nostalgic return. I don't find it interesting. It's not intellectually rigorous. And I think the ways in which the protest movement can move beyond its context and start linking up to protest movements across the world or like historical exceptionalisms across the world is for us to, to negotiate our relationship to, to democracy, right. to look at the law differently, and to see how things exist in continuums. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Speaking of that continuum, and I want to bring us right up to date now. There's a particular part of the book which just gripped me and moved me almost to tears, and um, I want you to I wanted to invite you to read so that everyone else can have that experience with me um, from page 40 to 41 of the book. And I just made a little note there. Okay. Yeah. So f from 40 to 41? Yeah, so it starts at after 2014 okay. and down to placed in prison. Okay. After 2014, with the election of Modi's BJP, the narrative of progress was exponentially accelerated. The good days are on their way. They did not arrive. 
The social and economic structure of the nation lies in ruin, particularly with the constant addition of policies that seek to strip regional state governments of their autonomy and centralize all power. The handling of the COVID-19 crisis exemplified this. State governments were unable to enforce local lockdowns or specific healthcare policies. The central government filed petitions in the Supreme Court to make itself the sole proprietor of pandemic handlings. The Modi regime repeatedly lied in open court about the deaths of migrant laborers who were rendered unemployed overnight after the declaration of the national lockdown, about the lethal shortage of oxygen during the deadly second wave. Despite an enormous death toll and the total collapse of healthcare infrastructure, the regime actively ran a parallel operation to malign a non-violent people's protest movement. It has incarcerated the leaders of this movement under notorious and archaic laws, blindly characterized young students as terrorists, as murderers, as manufacturers of arms. In doing so, it not only criminalizes them, these spirited leaders, but has also taken away their capacity to do the work of holding space for public discourse and critique. The physical sites of the movement have been destroyed, its revolutionaries placed in prisons. So there you have it, this kind of laying out of the situation and a kind of sweeping up, and I use that phrase extremely advisedly, um, of people who are trying to say something. So a book like this, which is trying to remember these small details and these connections across history and time, is incredibly important intervention into that. And, you know, one of the deepest questions you ask in the book is about risk and threat and it comes from something that Umar Khalid actually said as he was arrested what is the threat I pose what to the state is the risk of this what is his answer to that question and what did you make of that answer yeah so um, Umar like records this video which is another pieces of footage that I talk about um, preempting his own ad a a arrest um, and, you know, he asks in it, what is, the, you know, the, kya khatra hai maybe? like, what is the risk that I pose? And, and then he says, you know, they are going to trap you in their lies. And so he's, he, he also asks us to be vigilant. So he asks for two things, which is to identify the threat and then to remain vigilant in the, which, in, in the ways the threat is instrumentalized. One of the big kind of discursive registers of the protest movement was to critique words like democracy and citizenship. The laws were kind of asking us almost, forcing our hand to look at citizenship and what that meant and to look at like what its relationship was to the democratic method. Um, when the protest started, a lot of BJP officials, while they were trying to brand the protests as violent and kind of riotous, started saying, um, the protesters are directly threatening the structure of India. The, na the, the, the structure of the nation is under threat. Democracy is under threat. So there was this clear link between the thing that we were investigating and the thing that the nation state relies on in order to keep manufacturing itself in this way. Um, in India, the way in which we like grow up with our relationship to like words like democracy and secularism it's not just political, it's like a cultural exercise. You know, we have this kind of weird, like deep wounded attachment, at least I did growing up in the 90s and early 2000s, 
to this language. These were like totems, discursive totems that we never investigated, that we never looked at critically because they were kind of repeated so thoroughly in popular culture, in literature, in, in, the, you know, in the news. Um, and so this was like a big moment where the, 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 this kind of d deep like emotional resonance of, of these words was being discu discussed openly in public space. And so I think that is, is potentially one of the risks that, that some of these activists were posing, mm -hmm. where they were asking us to, to kind of rebuild India, almost. You know, there was no returning to anything. There was recognizing what we had inherited and finding a way to reconstruct it. Um, and a lot of the conversations were about reconstructing it at home, you know. A lot of caste scholarship, a lot of uh, kind of, you know, conversations around Islamophobia were about turn inwards, look at how, you know, this larger type of fascism is mirrored in the home. Yep. And, and I think that is also a deeply ideological threat. Yeah, um, so this question of, you know, who gets to call themselves Indian in this context? And that's one of the questions that you ask, and it's so striking because that is, that is the philosophical territory we're really on here, isn't it? Yeah, and I think that, you know, at some point, like a lot of people I know, at least I did, you know, we had this moment where we realized that India is a fiction. You know, it shouldn't exist. Like at some point, you just fundamentally realize that. And the only reason it works is because regional governments have autonomy or a degree of autonomy. There's a lot of writing around um, states like Kerala, you know, very strong kind of communist party leadership that have, you know, a strong regional identification, have stronger welfare states than states like UP or Uttar Pradesh, you know, that have been, the, the, the lines have been drawn so many times and there's three different languages and three different types of Hinduism and things don't, you know. And so at that point where you realize that India is a fiction, you realize that you're already the citizen of a type of fictional sphere that is like maintained on all of these like strange abstractions. And I think the India that we see now, this kind of Hindu nationalist project, can only legitimize certain types of Indians or certain types of Indians that believe in, in certain kind of religions, but also uh, rhetoric. So um, one of the big things that the mainstream will throw around is the like anti-nationals. So anyone that is like even slightly critical of the government, it likes a tweet, maybe sometimes by mistake, is considered an anti-national. And, and on the flip side of this, you have big industrialists, which is a whole other kind of uh, part of this, who are you know, working on these like kind of massive development projects across the country using the word nation building in their AGM rhetoric, you know? The concrete. So, yeah, the concrete, <laughs> the dams, the mining. And so this, this kind of, the, 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 this nationhood is, this, it has this kind of totemic quality. Sorry. Yeah, I want to get into some of this more kind of money stuff and this building, uh, nation building, because when we were speaking about the book before, you said it was primarily for a non-expert audience, probably a non-Indian one or a diaspora one, for one really important reason, and I love the way you phrase this, because it shows that you watching India as this fiction of, you know, 
fascist construction in language and in building and so on and so on are sitting in the future that we're moving towards here. So you, you can see something that we're moving towards. So let's talk about the role of the Indian diaspora, especially its money and its power in fueling some of this. Yeah, I mean, never in my life did I think, I mean, I don't think anyone I know, even people older than me, thought they would see um, this kind of South Asian representation and the potential Tory party leadership. <laughs> I mean, it's a kind of, it's a wild premise. And its proximity to money is like extremely important to look at critically. I think the Modi government has consistently had ties to industrialist families yeah. from the start, you know. Um, Adani, you know, Gautam Adani, he's been in the news a lot. He has just overtaken Bill Gates and his net worth and, you know, people are kind of moving that around. And he, since 2013, has had very close ties to the party and we see his kind of net worth exponentially increasing since the party comes into power. He's also fueled by national debt and he has like an enormous number of offshore holdings. I guess I'm, the landscape that I see the diaspora occupy is that the diaspora has consistently supported the Modi government, has consistently sent money back. There has been like a tangible monetary inflection. And we're talking in America in particular and in the UK. In America and the UK. I mean, in America, we saw the kind of bombastic versions of it with like the... The, the, the big receptions of Modi in stadiums and things when he did his state visits. Um, in the UK, it's like, I think it's slightly more invisible, but it, it exists. You know, almost all of the big industrialists that have been caught in some of the biggest scams we've ever seen, the Indian Premier League cricket scam, the diamond merchant scam, they're all living in London. Kingfisher, you know, the UK has also historically um, granted this like weird amnesty to fugitives. Mm -hmm. um, the wealthy fugitives. The very <laughs> wealthy fugitives. And then, you know, I think, but, so one of the things I, when I, when I, 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 I didn't travel um, for the last three years, two and a half years, and, but I've been traveling a bit in the last couple of months. And a lot of the question, the question I get all the time is, you know, what can we l like learn from what you're seeing? Um, and that's when I thought of this thing, which is like, I think I'm kind of sitting in the future of the way things are moving. Yeah. Where, um, you know, in like 2012, we see this like direct alignment of industry and politics. Um, then we see this like slow move towards like exceptionalizing pieces of history, um, isolating fragments um, and turning them into like powerful totems. Um, the language that you map, so we have, you know, the better days are coming in India, we have um, Make America Great Again in the Trump administration, and we have um, Take Back Control in the UK. In the UK. Yeah. yeah, it's really extraordinary when you start to hear it from the future. Yeah, and I think this was something that my friends in Bangladesh taught me because they're even, you know, they're even further ahead than yeah. us. Uh, in 2000, um, 
16, seven, no, 2018, um, someone we're very close to within the like photography and publishing world, Shahidul Alam, was taken into prison for giving uh, a very quick uh, set of kind of sound bites to Al Jazeera about um, a, a protest that was happening in Dhaka and how some children were kind of run over and how um, the state government was complicit in it. I mean, it was a very simple kind of set of statements and he was picked up and put in prison four hours after that aired. When that happened, it was shocking. We never thought that that could possibly exist as like a strategy of censorship. Um, and suddenly, you know, I started to look at, um, she was already looking at the law then, but I started to look, because I wrote a piece about it, and I started to look at these new kind of um, information um, acts, like information technology acts that were being introduced in Bangladesh. And already by that point, hundreds of people had been arrested for liking and retweeting Twitter posts and Instagram posts. Um, and, and, you know, all of this had just kind of slipped through the cracks because we weren't, like, reading about it in the mainstream. So, again, I had to look at the law in order to find it. Um, and so that was, you know, 2016 Dhaka. And, and you know, Arundhati Roy was kind of writing letters uh, to Shahidul in, in, in prison. They were having this amazing correspondence, which was being published in India. And, you know, all of us were like, wow, this is such an extreme situation. Cut to 2019, right. 2018, we're there. And my friends in Bangladesh were already saying, I think where uh, Israeli surveillance software is tapping our phones. We hear about Pegasus last year. My friend, you know, so I think, I think there are certain nation states in the world, Palestine is one of them, right, where military and surveillance infrastructure is tested out. Okay. Um, the limits of the law sometimes are tested out. Yep. The I transmutation think, of language, the algorithm, the yeah. surveillance, the creep of surveillance culture into our lives is, is, is actually being not just tested, but built. Yeah. And we saw that with Cambridge Analytica because right. the first campaigns that they ran were um, in India and parts of like in northern and southern Africa uh, before Brexit happened. Right. So. I kind of know the answer to this, and I think, you know, it's obvious what you might reply, but do you think there is a willful blindness as to what Modi and the BJP is doing to Muslims and minorities um, and this kind of creep that you're talking about in India? In elite circles, in the literary circle, as well as in the political circles, and especially in the diaspora and in the Western press, is it willful or do they just not care? Yeah, I find that very interesting with the UK in particular, uh, in terms of like things I read on India that are published here. There's like a kind of, yeah, it's, an, it's, it's, it's kind of an interesting conceit that uh, mobilizes some like kind of guilt, um, maybe, or like not wanting to like touch certain topics, maybe. Um, and I think, what I kind of want to try and do is repeatedly show how the nation states are learning from each other. I think you're right, yeah. I think that's like exactly what this project is doing and it's so important. Yeah, because this is not just something happening over there. No. It's something that is like moving through the kind of world. And that's why these days I'm like quite feeling quite preoccupied with the market. Um, 
there was a, a kind of interesting piece in the Economist that came out uh, a couple of weeks ago, maybe, called like, Will Modi Blow It? And it was the first time that I saw someone like making a relation between communal violence and the market. India is once again being like kind of being written about as like poised for this like boom and this like GDP growth, uh, which we've seen a, a million times over in the last like 20 years even. Um, and the big question is, is you know, is Islamophobia going to, in, uh, to, to kind of affect foreign investment? You know, sometimes the economics is kind of interesting to read because maybe it just like signals to investors what they should be up to. And this seemed to be one of the first times that I saw th that link being made. The, you know, there's the organization of Islamic cooperation that was kind of formed after this like brilliant moment in Indian history with the non-aligned movement, where a group of kind of Islamic states came together. And you know, some of that is still functioning. The, the kind of countries at this time that are part of the OIC, including the UAE, uh, which has like a big labor relationship with India, have never made a comment about Islamophobia in India apart from this year. Okay, so that's a big thing because that relationship is exploitative. Yeah, it's it's, it's and it and it and it's kind of comes back to market economics somehow. Right. So now that the market is threatened, people are thinking about Islamophobia. Okay, that just seems to be <laughs> maybe it's going to evolve, but. Okay, yeah. so, you know, before I think we can open this up to the audience fairly soon, I'm sure everyone has a lot of reflections and thoughts, um, personal experiences and questions for Sky. But I'd just like to ask you to read from the end of the book, just, you know, 42 to 43, that whole section, because it's really, I don't want to ruin the ending, but because it's kind of like it, the book ends in the middle and then there's like a bunch of images for you to consider. But. In August 2021, the Taliban took control of Afghanistan. As Afghans began to seek asylum, the Modi government seemed to issue emergency visas only to Hindus and Sikhs. The CAA was effectively put into action. Earlier the same month, at Jantar Mantar, a group of BJP supporters gathered in an anti-Muslim demo, children holding up posters calling for the annihilation of Islam. 34-year-old eyewitness Muhammad Nasir told Al Jazeera that Muslims in India live in an atmosphere of perpetual fear. Nasir had lost an eye in the February 2020 clashes. On September 10, 2021, Nupur Thaplial, a correspondent for Live Law India, tweeted an update from inside a courtroom hearing a petition in the Delhi riots case. UAPA accused Khalid Saifi and his wife are exchanging smiles, writes Taplial. She describes how Saifi's daughter shows him how long her hair has grown since she last saw him, how she smiles. In a July interview with Sharji Imam, one of the first activists and scholars to be arrested by the Delhi police in the riots case, Article 14 asks, what drove you to protest? In response, Imam posits, what drove millions of others to protest beside me? It was only because of several petitions filed by Imam's lawyer and nearly a year after the first request was made that he was finally given access to the 17,000-page charge sheet levied by the Delhi police against him. He expects to be held for up to seven years in pretrial detention. Imam spends most of his time in solitary confinement in Tihar Jail, a maximum security prison in New Delhi. He reads, he works on his PhD thesis, 
which is on partition and the subcontinent's history of communal violence. One of the primary sources for his research, Imam explains in the interview, is his own charge sheet. Natasha Narwal, Devangana Kalita and Asif Iqbal Tanha were granted interim bail in the only glimmer of hope the riots case has seen so far. The New Delhi High Court wrote, It is not uncommon for protesters to push the limits permissible in law, and importantly, that this does not amount to the commission of a terrorist act or a conspiracy or an act preparatory to the commission of a terrorist act as understood under the UAPA. As Khalid had emphatically declared in his Amravati speech, this fight is long. We must attend closely to the details. The fists, the upturned faces, the books, the drawings, the protest signs, the barricades, the tear gas shells, the metal bullet casings, the batons, the speeding jets of liquid spouting from water cannons. So, Sky, you know, the book has a sense of urgency and anguish and it's got this political commitment that comes through. And before I open the floor to questions, we can't end without thanking you for your clarity and your commitment and your words and your past and your future work. Thank you. Such a beautifully written book, and I'm, you know, I'd like to ask if anyone has any questions. Yes. Thank you so much for that. I um, was really struck by your ambivalent speaking about the law and and by extension, the rule of law. Um, you said in relation to the Delhi High Court um, upholding the, the decision to grant bail, you said something like this was like the law admitting its own limitations. And perhaps an activist lawyer might put it differently and might say, this is the law working correctly, this is an abuse, an attempted abuse of the law by police and prosecutors being corrected by a proper use of the law. Do I get a sense that, that you and a lot of the Indian left are understandably very um, skeptical about the rule of law, which is, uh, you know, to put it in Western Marxist terms, a kind of bourgeois freedom that even Western leftists are very cautious about. Are you sceptical about using the law and about the, the rule of law as, as, as something to use as an activist tool? Mm. Um, well, I, I guess I'm sceptical about legal reform, yes. I think, that, um, I think that when conversations are happening on a policy or re re legal reform level, sometimes we lose sight of the fact that it's very... Like, India is completely designed by the ways in which the bureaucratic method stops reform from happening. And so it's this kind of long and extremely painful task to enter this territory. And there are people that are doing it and have been kind of fighting it for decades. And I'm extremely kind of, you know, we're all grateful to these fights. But in order to process the present moment, it seemed important not to rely on legal reform as like a kind of antidote or as a kind of future speculation for what we were going through. We saw it happen kind of immediately with the COVID pandemic because as the central government was filing petitions to centralize power, 
local high courts were taking these almost kind of like very interesting oppositional approaches to the central government. We were almost seeing like little activisms going on in high courts where they were resisting. You know, the central government would say, no more lockdowns are going to be allowed. A local high court in Allahabad will say, no, we're going to have a lockdown, you know? So there were these kinds of moments of resistance that were very interesting and were happening at the level of the law. But at the same time, it is a high court that first writes the judgment about the hijab ban. So I think there is, there is a lot of room for legal reform to um, take uh, kind of momentary uh, pauses in the, in, in the like, machine that is the RSS and the machine that is the Hindutva Nation Building Project and cause these like, momentary ruptures where Indeed, a lockdown will happen when it has not been allowed to. Um, but there is also thousands of girls not being able to go to school because the high court takes it upon itself to enter someone's private relationship with their God. Because the hijab ban is not about religion. It's about autonomy and whether or not Muslim women will be granted a level of autonomy. And I think, so I think that's the kind of ambivalence that I'm trying to hold. I mean, in some ways, like I'm completely obsessed with the law. <laughs> you know, I'm like kind of completely preoccupied with what I'm able to glean from it. Um, but I, I kind of want to hold that contradiction and see it like a bit more clearly. Because that I think was some of the like errors that were made in the past in terms of critiquing or analyzing what, what we're living in. That, that, this, that this kind of resolution could be postponed through the, through the bureaucratic method in the shape of policy um, and legal reform. We haven't quite seen it. Does that kind yeah. of, yeah. I think we have time for a couple more questions or maybe one more question. So it's a question, but before that I would like to talk about my own personal experience as well because when this law was first passed, I, I, I was doing my bachelor's in Delhi University, just for everybody to know, because I was right there in Delhi while everything was happening. I was a student in Miranda House College, where it was very famous for protesting for everything that happened. So what happened was I woke up one day and then my professor, she was the cool professor, I did literature in bachelor's, she was the person that we would all go to, and she just sent a message saying, hey, my husband's been arrested. So, and then we get to know that by 6 a.m. the police had raided, fabricated evidence into his laptop, and he's still arrested, he's still in jail. So we, we, we come to know about it, and my professor is just like talking to us, and she's the cool professor, so we all, you know, rally behind, behind her. Because at that time, we didn't know anything about what was happening. We are just like, oh, we would protest with you and everything. So we go out to protest, and... The morning, people just say, the government says, there's news flashing across Miranda House, just saying, whoever protests in this particular protest for releasing this person would be deemed anti-national, and we can't guarantee what's going to happen to you after that. And my mom's calling me from the south of India, from the other end of India, like, just shut up and go back into your room, go study, do what you went there for, don't do anything that's not necessary. You need to be alive and everything. So... So all my relatives were calling, my grandmother was calling, I don't know how she knew that. And like, so this is how it started for me. And what, what happened after that was, 
I lost a lot of people as well, as in, as in I, saw pe I saw people who were really close to me losing their lives as well when this happened. And I sort of blocked everything out because when you live in Delhi for three years, that's sort of the norm. Like you, you normalize everything in your head and it didn't stand out for me. So what happened after that was we went to Jaipur, me and my friends were just like, because at this point this wasn't, I know this might be a very weird thing to say, but this wasn't something that was particularly huge that we were thinking about at that point because three years, there's like absolute horrific things that happened from the first day I stepped into Delhi to study literature. So we were just like, let's just go away. Let's just escape from this for a bit. We went to Jaipur and then we came back from Jaipur. We didn't know that there was a there was a thing that the government had said, or that DU, Delhi University, and JNU had said, you know, asking all the students to just stay in their rooms and not come out because the military and the police were going and beating people up brutally and killing students and stuff like that. So what happened was we landed in Delhi in the middle of this in an empty road with the military pointing their guns at our face, right? And like we got our five girls and all of us are scared and at that point, we sort of came to terms with it. We were like, if they're going to shoot us, we're going to shoot, they're going to shoot us. We can't do anything about it, and we're all going to die. So we sort of came to terms with it. We had guns from like both sides pointing at us, and we were just walking in the middle, knowing that we were going to die at any point. And, and finally, we did it. We got into the metro, and then the metro took a huge detour to get back to where we lived. We could hear bombs going off. And then I remember this one day, the last day I live, I was in <coughs> Delhi really, when the police and military were outside Miranda House. And you know how Delhi is usually, because people always say Delhi is the rape capital in the world, women are always scared to walk out at night. And for me, yeah, yeah, so that, that happened. So I was really scared and stuff. So I, I, what I wanted to say was just basically just tell you how amazing it was to hear you, hear you talk about all of that, because in my head I had normalized all of this. I went back pandemic happened and I didn't think about any of that again. So it was really amazing hearing you talk about all of that. And I do have a question as well, uh, because the question was basically, I never, go, because I write too, and uh, I've had this conversation with Preeti several times as well during my master's, because I, I never go back to any of those times to think about it and write it because I'm trying to heal from all of that. I don't want to go back to it because each time I write about it, I feel shit for the next one month at least because it absolutely destroys me. So, because you know how during this time, a month of horrible things you see. So I wanted to know how as a writer you get over that and write about something in such an effective way and at the same time not let it affect you. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to try to keep this short. Um, that, thank you for that. I'm so glad that you've think I had, you, um, yeah, that was really emotional for me, thank you. Um, I think uh, my healing process is the writing process. Um, I think I write to gain clarity, um, because if I sit with what I've seen and if I sit with the way in which, it, what it means to live in India right now, it's, 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 it's a completely claustrophobic, um, completely kind of um, fatalistic uh, position. Um, but trying to read a 17,000 page charge sheet somehow makes me feel like I have agency over this thing. 
Um, also in the ways that, uh, like I said in the start, we were receiving this information so like erratically. I mean, like you described, everyone came to the protest movement through these like extremely like um, wild registers. Um, this was a, an attempt to, 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 to kind of find clarity within that. Um, and so the one thing that I try to prioritize with form is clarity constantly. Um, for instance, I wrote a piece about the heat wave um, that's going to actually come out tomorrow. And while I was writing it, because um, I had a heat stroke, I was living through 13-hour blackouts in 49 degrees heat. I mean, it was, a, it, it was an insane experience going through that heat wave in, in, in March. And when I was trying to write about it, I found like language was failing me. I had no way to describe this thing that we've just been through. But then looking at mining and thinking about Adani's death somehow helped me process that. It's the details. It's the details. It's the details. There's really strict, formal details. So, you know, Sky, I'm sorry we have to cut this short. Yeah. Um, partly because I have to get a train at 9 p.m. <laughs> Um, but Sky is going to stay and sign books and chat to you all more, so please stay and um, enjoy that. And thank you so much for your incredible work. Thank you. Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.